Hey everyone, and welcome back to Becoming Mandela, the podcast with myself, Dave Cortine, and Trevor Waldock, author of the book on which this podcast is based. Now, we're at episode 20, so if you've been following along, you'll know that one of the key messages about how we, like Mandela, learn to become the best version of ourselves is that we need to be in community with others. With any healthy relationship, if we want to grow and develop, we need to learn how to have disruptive but constructive conversations. And that's what this episode is all about. Although, as Trevor points out, that's not always the easiest thing to do. If, you, if you're going to enter the tunnel of chaos, it, it's no good doing it just as you're walking out the door because you know you don't have time to finish that conversation. Mm. So it's trying to choose that time. Now, sometimes people say, but there's never a right time. And you have to make the right time. Say, so, look, I really want to have a conversation this evening about X. So when I get in, can I just kind of flag that up? That I'd really love a conversation tonight about X. Is that okay? So um, we have to, to make it happen. Don't forget, if you've missed any episodes, we'd really recommend you go back and catch up. But as you hear... Stay with us now for episode 20 of Becoming Mandela. So thanks for joining us again on Becoming Mandela. Now, actually, tonight's episode, I need to tell you, is sponsored by Lemsip. So Trevor has a little bit of a cough and a cold. Don't worry, he's checked himself out. It's nothing to do with uh, COVID. But we're going to get through this with um, with Lemsip and a bit of editing out of coughing, I think, Trevor. Is that right? That's, that's exactly right, yes. <laughs> so that should be testing my editing skills. So if you spot a cough, then that was the one that I missed. Apologies. But also, what's different about this uh, episode is we're launching into the final section of the book, which is called Call to Live. So Trevor, before we sort of delve into tonight's conversation, let's just explain to everyone what this section of the book is all about. So if you imagine watching a film where the camera angle starts wide and then goes narrow and then goes wide again, that's kind of what we're doing in the book. So the wide angle at the beginning of the book is like, who are you becoming? And... What's the legacy you're going to leave with your life? And are you aspiring to become an elder to influence and invest in this and the next generation? So we open that up in section one and put both the encouragement and the challenge around that. And then we focused in on specific characteristics and we use the whole Mandela as the metaphor as the, there are certain characteristics that we see developing peop, in people who become investors in others, in, in impactful legacy leavers, elders. So we chose a number of those, and we've looked at those individually. Now, <clears throat> we've only looked at a certain number that um, because of book writing and things like that you have to kind of decide how many to include or not include but for those who've been uh, captivated interested there is more so if you go on to the youth compass project that i've created which is so you can go on online it's free online learning platform 
It's on www.youthcompass.com. You go in there and there's, there are more characteristics. It's very practical, little videos and questions, and it's designed as a kind of online learning platform. So you can use it to, to supplement what we've already done and add a few more qualities. But then we've reached the point of saying, okay, how do we put this together? How do we, how do we step up? How do we engage in life now? How do we say, right, how do, as I am becoming this kind of person, because it's an ongoing work, you know, you never stop working on your ego. You never stop working on courage. You never stop working on humility. You never stop working on things like your mission, your vision in life, and and how you're going to contribute. You never stop those things. But at some point, you're going to say, right, how am I going to engage with life? How do I actually become that kind of person? I um, I came across this um, quote this week from uh, Kirsten Powers. Uh, Kirsten Powers is a political analyst who uh, works on CNN in the in America. She's written books and New York Times bestseller. And she was writing about her own life and reaching kind of mid-late 50s and then and waking up, really, to who she was becoming. And she uses that language, so it's great to hear. She hasn't read the book, but maybe she will. But she said, one of my life's turning points was suddenly asking myself, who do I want to be? She was suddenly mm. asking her, you know, I've gone through this career, been really successful, and but suddenly it's like, but who do I want to be? And she said, I'm supposed to be at this point in my life becoming an elder. So she recognized it. Mm. She said, I'm supposed to be becoming an elder. But if I look at who I am becoming, it's not the track I'm on. And um, so the whole a book describes her epiphany to to shift into a, a kind of legacy play as to well l- let's look at what it would mean for me to become an elder so that's what she then begins to explore so this last section is pull the camera angle out and say well, okay what are the issues that we need to look at to orient our lives so that we become legacy players so that we can shift towards becoming elders Great. So let's dive in. And this first episode today, we're going to look at and talk about having disruptive conversations. Disruptive conversations are those conversations that aren't easy to have, but are necessary if we if we want to grow. And in the last episode, um, we covered Ubuntu and we talked about the people that we've got on our team. And you talked about the fact that your sons are on the team and it, you've got that that fact that they're now helping you to to grow yourself and become the person that you that you want to be. And you start this chapter in the book by talking about some of the difficult and disruptive conversations that you that you have with your boys across you know across generations and that that's something that's that's important to have. So maybe we should start there and talk about talk about those sort of disruptive conversations. Yes, and, and I'll and talk generally I don't exactly want to embarrass yeah. them specifically, but um but I think so I, I, you know, I had a difficult conversation with one of my sons quite recently. But when I say difficult, I mean it was disruptive but very constructive. And the subtitle of this chapter around disruptive conversations is about learning, because disruption is key 
to learning. If everything's just going on as its, you know, its own sweet way and, and there's no disruption, then we just carry on as things are. Disruption suddenly means is oh, oh, whoa, whoa, we can't just go on. We need to talk about this. And if we don't talk about this, we won't learn. We won't grow. So that's why disruption is important. And uh, let me just use the parental one because it probably affects many of us. So, uh, you know, you have children, obviously, for some, those who, and, and, and as a parent, you've got your old plates on, you've got no idea what you're doing. <laughs> your only experience of parenting is the parents that you had and ones that you saw, observed at a distance. And you either want to imitate your parents because it was a good experience or you go like, no way I'm going to be like my parents because it was a bad experience. So we're kind of making those reactive adjustments. And, and of course, because we're so intimately involved with them growing up, we are projecting all of our own growth issues <laughs> into our kids. It's not a neutral, it's not like we got it sorted and the kids other ones who need to learn no we are projecting all of our own challenges growth unresolved issues into our kids the way we discipline indulge overindulge too strict not strict whatever are all coming out of our own deep patterns getting worked out fine that's how it is it's messy and we do the best we can uh, and Winnicott basically talked, you know, there's no such thing as a perfect parent. He used the phrase good enough. <laughs> Was it good enough? Yeah. Um, and you'll know as, as, some days as parents, you were just happy that everybody was still alive at the end of the day. Yeah. But um, But there comes a point when your kids move away from you and away from home to start making their own home, which is, you know, what happens in adolescence and into early adulthood. It's an absolutely necessary shift. Um, but it's not always an easy shift. And people talk about the empty nest syndrome, but the kind of relationships that you form with your kids growing up suddenly have got to undergo an adjustment. Do they want to see more of you? Do they want to see less of you? Does that matter to you? Does it not matter to you? So suddenly there are these renegotiations going on, these readjustments. And, and I think the most healthy way of looking at it is what the kids are giving you is another chance to look at your own stuff, basically. <laughs> so um, your own ego issues, your own patterns, your own unfinished growth issues, they give you another chance um to to look at your own stuff so now to do that well means they're now adults they got a view and it's different than your view they're independent you want them to be independent but they're now independent and very different individuals and of course where there's difference there's potential for disruption because if everyone's the same and everything's the same no disruption but suddenly They've got a voice of their own. They've got desires of their own. They've got perspectives of their own. And they have a perspective on you as a parent, which isn't always an easy perspective because you wanted to see yourself as an absolute total superstar as the parent. And they're going, like, well, actually, Dad, it wasn't quite like that. We didn't see it that way. <laughs> well, what do you mean it wasn't like that? You know, so um, suddenly you're into a difficult conversation and it's a 
disruptive conversation, but it can be a very productive conversation because it does two things. One, it allows you to start examining those parts of yourself that you haven't dealt with, which is absolutely crucial in becoming the best version of yourself. Because if you don't deal with that stuff, you will then play it out on your particular part of the world that you're you know, unresolved egos will play themselves out. We see it every day at work, in politics, in whatever. Um, so, and the relationship can keep on growing. And if the relationship keeps on growing, then it becomes a fertile part of the Ubuntu. Of You know, it's we. we if we are growing, then both of us individually can keep on growing as well. So that's an example from parenthood of, disruptive conversations that can follow us through great and in the book you refer to like the four phases of disruptive conversations yes do you want to sort of talk through those a bit okay so i found the work of um scott peck he's probably very dated now but it was very helpful back in back in the day um as so for those of our listeners who are avid readers um a different drum and a world waiting to be reborn is where he works out this stuff. People who come in business will have heard the forming, storming, norming, performing kind of stuff from Tuckman. And as a psychologist, Scott Peck took that on and kind of just said, well, is this actually how it works in real life? And so he, he came up with a slightly different dynamic. And let me see if I can kind of work it out. So the first phase is what he called pseudo-conversation or pseudo-community. So when I use the word community here, I'm talking about relationship. So sure. think back to Ubuntu, if you like, pseudo. Uh, so pseudo is, is, is not very deep. It's not very real. So pseudo-conversation is, um, so how are you doing, Dave? I'm fine, Trevor. Great. Do you have a good weekend? Yeah, it was good. How about you? No, it was great. Now, that's part of our social convention totally normal nothing wrong with it at all but it's pretty surface we don't really learn anything about each other at that at that level of conversation so if we keep the conversation at that level it's it's what would be called a pseudo relationship so it is a relationship but it's not a real kind of engaged relationship and we do that all the time so the hi Dave, hi Trevor bit is the the normal way. It's the doorway we go through to get into the deeper conversations. You know, how did this go for you last week? You said that was going to be difficult. Was it difficult? Yeah, well, tell me what, what did that feel like? Now we're getting into a deeper, more kind of engaged conversation. Well, as a lot of people don't get beyond the the pseudo. So, um, and the other thing about pseudo conversations is. There's no difference there. Everyone's the same. We all think the same, don't we? And you see that. You see it in religious groups. You know, you get a bunch of people who go to the same church or synagogue or whatever. And because they all go there, it's, well, we all think the same, don't we? You know, we're, this is, we all agree on this, don't we? And, and that's the pseudo. The pseudo is to pretend that we all think the same thing. We all agree the same thing about whatever the uh, th thing that we're meeting around. Well, it's blatantly not true. It doesn't matter what you share in common. No two people share exactly the same views about anything. Um, there's always difference. So what happens then when you move away from the pseudo into the difference, it can get a little bit disruptive. 
and um, it can become chaotic, a bit messy. Because you get into it and suddenly difference breaks out. Suddenly it's, oh, you don't think the same as me. What do you mean you don't think the same as me? I thought we agreed on this. Well, no, we don't. Well, what do I do now? If, if you and I don't agree, that means we disagree. Hmm. We're different, therefore we're separate. We can't be in the... Well, and you can see the mess arising, and you can see it in offices, religious settings, family settings. People then start forming alliances with the people that they think agree with them and the ones that they don't think they agree with. So it becomes chaotic, it becomes messy. All of the differences are now emerging. You can tell, there's two ways you can tell that chaos is breaking out in a relationship. One is the temperature goes up. So voices start raising and people start talking louder and faster and everything becomes much more kind of energetic. But the other, less talked about, is when the energy disappears out of the relationship. And I saw this loads of times working with teams. The team would move from the pseudo conversation and they'd get into talking about some big issue that was going on in the team that was potentially very difficult. And suddenly the energy would go out of the room. It's like someone had opened the window and pulled the and sucked out the life. And you go, well, what happened there? And everyone's kind of yawning and bored and the, the, the meeting loses its energy. Well, that's a symptom that we've moved into this chaos. Because what's happening is all the energy is just being held in. It's there. It's all there, but it's being trying. People are trying to hold it in. Now, what usually happens when the chaos breaks out in a conversation, the difficulty, the disruption, is we quickly cycle back to pseudo. We try and make it nice. We try and calm it down. We try and it's like, oh well, no, everything's going to be fine, isn't it? And we try and paper over the difficulties, paper over the differences. And because uh, we want to feel good again. And that's often what will happen. You can look at it in a relationship context, you know, whether it's um, difficulties around money or sex or in-laws is the conversations get difficult. And what happens is the couple then cycle back quickly into pseudo conversation because it's too difficult, too dangerous. Now, the problem is then is you're shutting out the possibility of growth and learning. That's what happens. Because if you now hold a relationship where, well, we can't talk about this, we can't talk about that, we can't go there on this, we can't go there, then there's suddenly there's whole bandwidths in this relationship that are no-go areas. So we can't grow in those areas. So the, the oxygen supplied to the relationship gets diminished. That's what happens if we stay in pseudo. So you've got this cycling backwards and forwards between this pseudo conversation into the chaotic conversation. How do you move on is the question. How do you move on to a conversation? How do you move through and use the disruption to create a conversation where there's learning and there's growth? The way out of the chaos is not back into the pseudo conversation. What Scott Peck said, the way out of the chaos is through what he called emptiness. You see, in chaos, no one is listening to each other. I want, to, I want you to hear what I've got to say. And I'm already answering you before you've even stopped talking. You know, it's that kind of. And what happens in emptiness is you think, this is not, we're not going to resolve this. There's, there's, this is not going to work out. This is going to fall to bits. This relationship is going to end. This is, we're at an impasse. You, you start hitting that place, but you don't panic. 
even though you want to panic. What happens is you actually start looking at the other person. And kind of in the silence, you realize there's another person there. And they're not just a projection of you. They're another person. Yeah. There's a difference. And suddenly you begin to see them. And I'm talking about the eyes because often it is, even in conflict, is when you look into someone's eyes in a conflict, you see there's a person there that's hurt or wounded or not feeling heard and listened to. And so in that, what Peck calls this emptiness, he said, you stop trying to fix each other because you know you can't. You stop trying to heal each other because you can't. You stop trying to convert each other to your point of view because you know you can't. So you stop doing those things. And what you begin to do is listen. So what do you think, Dave? What does the world look like for you? Help me understand that, because I just don't get it. So help me understand what your world looks like and how you ended up in that place and why you see it that way and why you think that's a good way of going about this or why we should do that is you begin to start listening and learning. So whereas going from chaos back to pseudo makes the relationship tighter, smaller and deprives the oxygen, what happens in the emptiness is suddenly you're opening up the possibility of growth and learning. And then something quite magical happens is when you sit with the not knowing, because you just don't know, you, you know, you're just learning, you don't, if something happens, something happens and the relationship moves on. Because now there's space for you to be you. So it's, um, I can't remember the exact chemical thing, but there's two chemicals where you put something in and it, what it does is it frees them both up. It frees up the individual, if you like, to become more themselves. So this is where this sits with becoming Mandela. It's through the disruptive conversations that actually we get to a place of growth and, and more space to grow as individuals and as a relationship. And that's a brilliant description of that whole process. Is part of the problem, though, trying to identify which stage of the conversation that we're at? Because I always think it's it's easy, you know, they always talk about um, economic cycles. They're easy to look back and identify yes. where the peaks and the troughs are. But the one you're in, no one knows where we're at. And is that is that the same? Yes, think? I think it is. I, I think the more... I think one is having the language. So I found it helpful. So there was a guy in the States called Bill Hybels who took those four stages and, and he just tried to create a bit of a picture around it. So he talked about pseudo community and he talked about the tunnel of chaos going in this like long, dark tunnel. You can't see the end of it. And, yeah. You know, so he tried to create some imagery around it. Uh, and what that did is it gave us language. So I think the more we can just have some language, that's why I put it in the book, the more we can have some language, like, like pseudo, chaos, emptiness, community, or Ubuntu relationship, I think if the language is there, it's easy for one person in the difficult conversation to say, I think this is where we are. Or, you know, at, 
and you might say it, it feels like we've just cycled back from chaos. It feels like we've just like it was getting difficult, and we've just and you know don't want to stay there because that's not going to be healthy. So let's just try and more gently and kindly enter back into that bit of chaos, and then watch the energy levels in the conversation. So it feels like we're in a place of not knowing right now. That feels all right. It feels odd, but we're okay because we don't really know. And there's possibilities here. So having the language and and just over time applying that language, I think I, I think you can begin to spot it live. Sure. So <clears throat> I think what you're saying is that these disruptive conversations aren't going to be particularly enjoyable. At times they can feel a bit painful, particularly when we're going through the chaos. But we shouldn't avoid them because there's so much to gain from them. Yes. And we all want to avoid. I mean, I, I don't want to give any impression that I have any enjoyment about having difficult conversations. I um, I find them as hard as the next person. Uh, and I want to avoid them as much as the next person. Um, but But I know you can't grow without them. There is no growth without disruption. So it's it's valuing it even though it's it's difficult. So as someone, you know, I've grown up in a in a business where um, there's been two of us and we often see things quite differently. And I think over time I've I've learned probably as I've got a bit older that it's not about trying to win the argument uh, and trying to be right, because if we do that, we we lose the ability to gain a different perspective, don't we? So I think mm. I think part of this is about recognizing that it's not the winning of the argument that's important. It's it's trying to gain the perspective of others that are in that and see things mm. from a different different way. Yeah, I think it is. That's exactly right, Dave. I think it's the growth and the learning that's the prize here. It's that you become a bigger person. It's that it, it is. You, it is the becoming Mandela is it's through that. And, and Mandela, you know, he will talk about the fact that he had all these difficult conversations, even with his best friends. It wasn't like they went even in the rock quarry in their lunchtime, you know, on Robin Island. It's not like they're all chatting at lunchtime, back slapping Mandela and going like, Hey, rock on man. You know, it's, um, excuse the pun there, yeah. <laughs> but, um, it was conflictual. And they disagreed with him. And, um, you know, even when they got to the point towards the end, nearing his release, when he had to make the decision, you know, am I going to go and meet the opposition or not? And, and and he didn't even tell them because he knew they disagree and they did disagree. And, you know, messy conversations, messy conversations. But, but avoiding the messy conversations would definitely ensure that there was no growth. And so whilst you're saying that, you know, you don't look forward to them and you don't you don't seek them out. How do we say plan for it? But how do we create the space to allow these messy, disruptive conversations to happen in our in our lives? I think one is. Well, it comes back to intentionality. OK, is I need to have that conversation. So I think that's got to be is I need to have that conversation because if we don't have that conversation, 
it will be damaging. It will be. Not it might be. It will be damaging. So the intentionality has got to be there. Second thing I think is about the timing is choosing the time and the place. Because it needs to be safe. It needs to be safe to have difficult conversations. So it was the Google study on the workplace that looked at what were the conditions of highest performance. And the number one factor that emerged from the research was nothing that you would expect. It was safe place. It needs to be right. a safe place. That's what they identified as the defining attribute of a high-performance culture. Is it safe? Is it safe to fail? Is it safe to have a difficult conversation? Um, because if it's not safe, people won't won't do it. And that's why people collude and don't tell bosses what they really think, and you know you get corporate lying is because it's not safe. So we need to find safe a safe way, a safe place, and a, and a a time. If you if you're going to enter the tunnel of chaos, it it's no good doing it just as you're walking out the door because you know you don't have time to finish that conversation. Mm. So it's trying to choose that time. Now, sometimes people say, but there's never a right time. And you have to make the right time. Say, look, I really want to have a conversation this evening about X. So when I get in, can I just kind of flag that up? I'd really love a conversation tonight about X. Is that okay? So um, we have to, to make it happen. And And you talked about you know, creating a safe a safe place. So is there, are there any help you can offer us in terms of how we, how we do create that? I mean, some of it will be preferential. I mean, I, I'm not going to have a really tough conversation if there's loads of people around. Yeah. So I want to know I'm one-on-one -on -one or whatever with the group of people. I, I think that if you take the extreme in let's say a relationship problem where you need to enter into a difficult conversation you bring in a third person now that might be a therapist sure or in some instances it might be a really trusted friend that's trusted by both where you say to them look can you just help us to hear each other because we keep interrupting each other. So can you just, we're not asking you to fix anything, solve anything or whatever, just, but can you just help us to listen to each other? That's all we want to do on this first conversation is just, we want to hear each other out. I think there's one thing that's interesting from all my work around management leadership development was around team meetings. And I think this does have some wisdom to offer. You see, there's about seven different functions that you can have in a team meeting, and they all get muddled up. So, for instance, um, you know, gathering insight and data is a function. Making a decision is a function. Having a negotiation is a function. They're all separate functions, and they all have different processes. And one of the difficulties is you say, we're going to have a meeting about, you know, whether we buy a new tennis club. And and everyone thinks, oh, my goodness, we're going to have this meeting and I've got lots of strong feelings about it. And am I going to get my views heard? And 
So when people are trying to contribute in the meeting, they, they're trying to push their point. They're trying to say this, whatever they're saying, they're really trying to say, this is the decision we should make. This is the decision. Now, in really well handled meetings, right at the beginning, you say, this is not a decision making meeting. Mm. This is an information gathering meeting. The only purpose of this meeting is we want to hear from everybody in the room what their perspective is on this issue, not what the decision is. That's another time we'll get to that. Right now, I just want to know what's everyone's perspective and we'll reflect whether there's any common ground and what the differences are. And that will be it. <clears throat> now, when you set those kind of boundaries, then people are not having to defend their position. Yeah. They just need to express their perspective. So I think you can apply that same thing into difficult conversations. Say, tonight, in this conversation, let's just make sure we hear each other. Let's not make any decisions tonight. Let's agree that's off the table. Mm -hmm. Let's just hear each other. Or it might even be as simple as let's hear where we think we agree. And tomorrow night we'll talk about where we think we disagree. So you kind of feel your way into it slowly, but you you structure it and you put boundaries in place to help you have the difficult conversations. And then the other thing is just kind of set the rules, really. It's never attack an individual. Right. Never attack an individual. Because that's what we then turn it into. If we're getting in real pain and really trying to defend our ego, it's it moves from it is wrong to you are wrong. Mm. Yeah. From it is bad to you are bad. And now it's really personal because you're attacking someone at the core of their identity. And and if you do that, they, there's only one thing they can do, which is defend. Yeah. Because it's too painful to not do that. So I think just setting some ground rules as well. So it's a tough topic to, di to discuss. And... Um, and I think there's been some really helpful pointers there that you you've given us and helped us to understand why actually what appears to be difficult, awkward situations or conversations can actually be crucial to our to our growth. And part of that, a part of that growth, is down to the to the challenges that we set ourselves. And that's what part of what I love about becoming Mandela is that you 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 share some thoughts, some concepts, you teach us and then and then give us some challenges to go away with. So what are the challenges around um disruptive conversations? Yes, so let's have a look at some of those. And I think the important bit as we get to those is to just come back to why is disruptive conversations in the book? And the answer is because you can't become the best version of yourself. Yeah, without disruptive conversation. So it's not this is not just like a a relational counseling book or anything like that. It's a, oh, that's an interesting subject. There's no this is integral yeah. to the process of becoming. So the first question that I've put in the book is can you recall a difficult conversation that you've had in the past? And in what ways did you and your relationship grow through it? So let's look at the positive. Sure. So, yeah. So I lost my mum actually a couple of um, a couple of months ago, mm -hmm. and um, uh, my relationship with her was one that was full of these difficult conversations. And actually, we saw the world quite differently, to be honest. And so we would always find having a lot of difficult difficult conversations with her. However, what I think 
looking back over her life and my part in it is that that in many respects although to people on the outside probably sound as though we just regularly were arguing and bickering actually that helped to deepen our relationship it just because we didn't see things the same way didn't diminish the love or respect we had for each other and that as I sort of go through the process of her not being around anymore is is one of the things that I'll cling on to more than anything really so yeah she was she was um yeah and there were others that said it at her funeral as well she was somebody that you know there was her way and the right way were the same thing Mm. (laughs) and um and so she was always somebody that would would stand her ground Uh, but we had so we had lots of what I would call in the way you've just described disruptive conversations and I can remember actually getting home from school um so I'm going back a bit now but I would get home from school and the routine would be before I got my homework is I'd have a cup of tea and some bread and jam and we'd sit down and we'd chat about various different topics and subjects regularly disagreeing but by arguing the points through with her about what I felt helped me to understand who I was at that stage and certainly has helped me to kind of recognize the importance of you know as you've just alluded to in this conversation we've had just now about the importance of of disruptive conversations and projecting forward in into my into my work life I think that's why I've been able to work in a business partnership although it's an limited company but but it's been myself and Steve that have owned the business and we likewise would often see things differently but it enabled me to have difficult challenging conversations with Steve but from a perspective that we would debate hard about the issues but that we would be respectful and mindful of each other and hence the reason why 35 years on our our, mm, our relationship still works yeah thank you for sharing that yeah the four phases that i talked about in the book and we just went through just now or in terms of a disruptive conversation you know the pseudo the chaos the emptiness the learning can you relate to those in your own experience do you have examples do you notice them yeah i mean i think as you were talking uh, I think I could relate quite a bit to the whole, you know, the energy going up and then the energy going down. And I think the I think there's a natural pace at which you develop from from those kind of the first three stages. I think the the critical bit and sometimes the bit that we're not able to move on to is that fourth stage is the learning. I think sometimes it becomes if the chaos has been really chaotic, then then it can take people a while to move on to mm. the learning phase because you're too wound up by the chaos. Mm. Mm. And I think if, for me, if I was going to have like what's one takeaway from, from this chapter and from this conversation that we've had tonight, Trevor – it would be it would be that it would be that I need to make sure that when I do have chaotic, disruptive conversations, that I remind myself as I go through that phase. Okay, so what's the learning out of here? And not and not, of course, the temptation is to think, and what's the thing that the other person needs to take away from this as their learning point? Because we're all good at doing that, but it's actually no. What is it that I need to learn? What is it that I need to get from this that I clearly? will benefit me and will will make me the better person. So that would be that would be the one thing for me. Great, thank you. 
So the third question was, um, and again, decide how you want to answer this, but what are the disruptive conversations either with yourself? Because some of the conversations we need to have are with ourselves, actually. What are the disruptive conversations you need to have either with yourself or others right now that you think you might be avoiding? So I remember when I, when I saw this question, my initial reaction was to be, I don't think there's many people in my life that are either family or or work-wise that will think I avoid having difficult conversations. I, I, I think perhaps that's what they would say. But I think as we've gone through this whole process of becoming Mandela, it's it's made me realise I need to recognise or debate or answer the question about who I am becoming and what it is that I need to do in this next in this next phase of life. I'm going through you know some fairly significant life changes are going to happen to me. So so you know my kids are are my daughter is reminding me already that this the end by the end of this year she'll be driving, which um which seems incredible. So my children are getting to the age where they're going to become less dependent upon us as parents and where they're going to start to be moving away. And that's, you know, if they go to university, certainly with my eldest, then she'll be gone in, in two years. So so that is um, quite scary and quite an interesting thought. So there's going to be a real change in the parenting dynamic, a bit like you alluded to at the start of this conversation tonight. Work-wise, that inevitably is going to change because I need it to change because there's that element of, developing and and enabling those people to step up and take on the roles that I've got and and there will come a point when I need to to move on from that so so the disruptive conversation I'm kind of avoiding a bit because I'm a bit in denial is is the is a disruptive conversation I need to have with myself about you know what am I going to do what's the path that I'm going to walk how am I going to become more of an elder in the groups that I'm that I'm involved with and and so on that's that's a conversation that I yeah I will be putting off I think or I am putting off and that I probably need to have wow great very good well there we go food for thought for me and hopefully uh some food for thought for you for you too so thanks for joining us again on this uh latest episode of becoming Mandela hope you've enjoyed it thanks for being part of it and we'll look forward to seeing you next time. Bye for now.